Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing today? We good? Front row's good. Anybody else? All right. Hey, I'm excited you're here. Uh, Welcome back to part two of Sharks and Selfies. If you're here for part one, you understand why it's named that. Uh, But if you don't, if you're like, what? I don't get it. Let me recap it for you. Um, We named this, it's a series about fear, because 51% of Americans, people who were surveyed, said, yes, I am actually deathly afraid of sharks to the point of not swimming in the ocean because of it. So that's really funny. It's a comical statistic because one person a year on average gets attacked and eaten by a shark. So 51% of us, how many millions and millions and millions are afraid of something that only happens to one of us every single year? Right, it's kind of funny, you think about that statistic. But here's something that a lot of us aren't afraid of. Uh, How many in the room would say, I'm terrified, deathly afraid of selfies? I avoid all cameras, I turn off the function, I tape over the hole, you know, whatever it is, if that's you, if you're like, I'm scared, my my life, my well-being is threatened by a selfie, um, we'll pray for you, I guess, I I don't know. That's, (laughs) many of us in here don't feel that way. So, but here's the thing, selfies have actually killed way more people over the last seven years than sharks have. Bet you didn't know that. 259 people have died taking selfies over the last seven years versus shark attacks. So we pose this series because oftentimes we're afraid of things that we shouldn't be and we're not afraid of things we should. So last week we talked about fear of God, but this week uh, we're going a little bit more general. We're zooming out a little bit and we're just talking about fear, fear in general. And so here's the thing. Um, Many of us are afraid of things like spiders, right? That's going to be me. I'm just going to tell you right now. I hate them. They ain't legs. It's creepy. It's awkward. I hate when Shan says, that's a spider right on our ceiling. And I'm laying in bed and I'm already comfy and I'm good to go. And I go, there's no way I'm sleeping tonight knowing that thing's above me, right? Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, cool. Couple of us. Last, last service, they were just mean. They went, nope, not me. Just you, David. So good to have you with us. But maybe spiders, maybe you're Indiana Jones. You hate snakes. You just, they creep you out. You're like, no, thank you. Um, maybe it's public speaking, doing what I'm doing right now. This actually made public speaking, speaking in public, made the top 10 list in 2017 of people's deepest fears which is really funny to me. Let's keep going. Um, Corruption. This is wild. Do you know the number one fear in 2017 that, I mean, everyone surveyed said, I think it was 70 some percent, said one of my deepest fears, number one, is political corruption. Wow. That is nuts. Some of us laugh. We go, yeah, it's not that far outstretched, you know, right? It's in the realm of possibility. But that's actually been a theme the last couple years. Let's keep going. Um, What about the loss of loved ones? What about financial security? And what about death? A lot of us maybe don't spend a lot of time thinking through, what are are my deepest fears? What am I most afraid of? But but with a little bit of introspection and a little reflection time, it's pretty easy for us to relate and start thinking, There are definitely some things that kind of have a grip or a hold in my life of things that I'm afraid of. But here's bad news. I got bad news for you today. I got good news. That's later. Bad news for you is this. All of you have something, okay? It's kind of a pandemic. It's like an epidemic. It's all throughout the world, especially the last couple years. But it's this thing called, wait for it, FOMO. Does anybody know what FOMO means? Maybe not. All of you are scared right now. I have no idea what David's talking about. I have something. Am I going to die? Is it going to kill me? FOMO is this acronym that stands for, wait for it, fear of missing out. Maybe you're sitting there going, I don't have that. 
I bet you do. Ask the loved one next to you. Do I have this fear? Do I make stupid decisions with our money so that I can be in the group and in the in crowd? Do I go to parties I don't want to go to? How many of you, maybe just because of social media, have found out about a party or an event or a shower or something like that that you weren't invited to but you wish you would have online? That you've seen that. What happens inside of you? You're like, did they move on without me? Do we not have the relationship that I thought we did? Did I miss something? The new movie comes out or the sports game. How many of you have been caught talking? You know, you walk into the office and they're talking about the game that happened last night and immediately you're like, nobody asked me any questions. Nobody, I don't even know what sport they're talking about. Okay, help me, help me, help me. Change the subject. FOMO or this fear of missing out is actually kind of this deep-seated fear inside of us, although many of us don't relate it or we wouldn't quantify it as fear. But fear, this is kind of, we can hang everything on this. This is where we're going today. Fear always dictates our actions. That behind action is fear. Sometimes that's a healthy fear, right? In relation to snakes or cliffs or spiders, you know, it's a healthy fear. It says, that thing's dangerous. I don't need to go there. I'm threatened. You know, move on. That's actions that are taken as a result of a healthy fear. But some of us have unhealthy fears, Fears that drive us away from God and away from relationship and away of of community and being with one another. And these fears play themselves out in very significant and oftentimes harmful ways in our relationships, in the way we live life, at work, and et cetera. I mean, fear is this big issue. So here's the good news. I told you there'd be good news. Good news is that the Bible has a ton to say about the topic of fear. So fears always dictate our actions. I don't want you to miss that. But fear always makes us do things, or often, I won't say always, fear often makes us do things that we wouldn't normally do. So if you have your Bible, I want you, I'll just encourage you, pull out your Bible, open it up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today. And if you don't have your Bible, pull out your phone or something to take notes in or write on or type up, whatever. But we will have notes for you or scripture on the screen here too. But I want to set it up. And so the guy we're looking at today, he's my favorite disciple, hands down, bar none. Uh, his name's Peter. And Peter is one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus for three years. And Peter is just a riot to me. I mean, he's just, he's funny. He's the guy that kind of speaks up and he speaks quick and he says too much. And he's the guy that like inserts foot into mouth over and over and over. Anybody have people like that in your life? Don't nudge. Just raise your hand and say, yes, I might. It's not you, but it could be. So Peter and the disciples are all with Jesus and they're in this room and Jesus speaks to the disciples on the night that he was gonna be arrested. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew what was unfolding, but Jesus addresses the 12 disciples and he says this. It's not on your screen, but this is Matthew 26. Then Jesus told them this very night, all of you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Peter, right? If you're watching, insert foot into mouth. Jesus just makes a claim. Jesus has never been wrong yet, but he says, all of you are gonna deny me and all of you are gonna fall away. And Peter says, nope, not me. I won't do it. I'm different than all the rest of them. I'm special. Trust me, I won't do it. So Jesus addresses him. He says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, 
will disown me how many times? Three times. You've heard this story. And then you gotta love this, right? So Peter steps out of the line. Jesus says, yeah, you're not that special. You're gonna do it too. In fact, you're gonna do it three times tonight. Peter opens his mouth again, which just get ready. He says this, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. So that sets up our story of where we're going because you have to understand the context. So Jesus and the disciples just have this interaction. And Jesus says, there's some things that are gonna happen. They're gonna play out. You're not gonna understand even though I've told you, but all of you are gonna fall away because of what's happening to me. So just a couple hours later, Jesus is in the garden. He's with his disciples and this mob comes to arrest Jesus. And so they come in and they rest him, right? They bind him and they start walking away and there's this altercation and somebody cuts off somebody else's ear. I mean, it's like, it was a significant encounter. And Jesus, as he's carted away, he ends up in what's called the Sanhedrin. And so if you look, we have a picture of this. The Sanhedrin is like the religious council and judges and authority at the time. And so this was in the house or in the, like the courtyard of where this Sanhedrin takes place. So this false kind of fake trial in the middle of the night, Jesus is taken here. The rest of the disciples scatter, but Peter follows closely behind and hangs out in here which is the courtyard. And on the other side, you can see these arches. On the other side is when you can see the interrogation that is taking place from the religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin and Jesus. So let's, let's read what happens. We're in Matthew 26, starting in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, what we just saw, and a servant girl came to him you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. So remember this conversation that Jesus and Peter had, and he said, you will, dis you will deny me or disown me how many times? Three. So we're gonna count together. You feel like counting today? Everybody say one. Perfect, let's go to the next one. <clears throat> then he went out to the gateway. So it's descriptive, just picture where he's at. Where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, he denied it again, this time with an oath saying, I don't know the man. Everybody count? Two. Two. Let's go to the next one. After a little bit of time, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Say it with me. Three. Three. And like a bad movie, it says immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Here's the question I just want to ask us today. Just to think about this. What happened to Peter in a matter of hours that he went from being willing to die with Jesus? No matter what, I'll never disown you. Disown. I'll never disown you. I'll die before I allow that happen. And then just a mere couple of hours later that all of that unravels and he's denying, not to some powerful religious political figure, but denying his relationship to Jesus to a mere servant girl 
or to other random people in the story and in the courtyard, what happens in the unraveling in Peter's life so quickly that forces him to renounce and deny that which is most central to his identity? And the answer, and this is where all of us can relate, is fear. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. What this looks like, um, in the field of psychology, there are five different basic types of fear. Let me walk these through. It starts at the bottom. It works its way up. The first one is ego death. This talks about humiliation, shame, or a feeling of worthlessness. That's that's very much reputation of what people think of you. But then another one, as you move up, it goes to separation. That's like social isolation. You're no longer in community or relationship with someone else. Loss of autonomy. You become imprisoned or you become immobilized. You can no longer control or make decisions for yourself. Then mutilation, it's just what it sounds, like bodily harm or mutilation, bodily harm. And then the last one, extinction, also known as death. So as we think about Peter and we think about fear, this thing, that fear that so easily just creeps its way in and penetrates our heart and controls us. Remember what we said at the beginning, fears always dictate our actions. When fear was able to get in the heart of Peter, play this out, ego death, what people think of me. I'm now connected to Jesus and Jesus is on trial. They wanna kill him. I'm now connected to him. What might people think? How might I be able to work after this if I survive this? What will my family think of me? What will my friends think of me? What is the cost socially that I will have to pay for being related to Jesus? Let's go up a level. The next one, separation. It seems like he's alone in the courtyard, doesn't it? People are coming up and they're trying to associate. Aren't you with him? I'm pretty sure there's a group and I think you're in it and he's going, no, I'm not by myself. I'm not by myself. I'm not by myself because there's, there's vulnerability by yourself. Go to the next one, loss of autonomy. That was very much a risk. Jesus was being held against his will. Peter, this could have been a very real reality. He's in the place where Jesus is being tried. And then you go to mutilation. Am I going to be tortured for this? Am I going to be hurt? Am I going to face harm? And then the last one, could I die for this? Would I die for this? This is so interesting how fear has the ability to fly through all five of these levels, all five of these different types of fears and manipulate and control in a way that leads to paralysis. That's where Peter's at. So here's my question, maybe just for you, but what about you? What are you afraid of? I mean, if you just put yourself with Peter, here you are, you're in the courtyard. What do you most fear? Or make it more relatable even to today. Think about you, where you're sitting right now. What are you most afraid of? You know, is it paying bills? Is it the health of yourself or a family member? Is it a job? Is it your ability to provide? Is it what you do? You know, I, I don't know my purpose in life. I don't know how I, how I fit. Maybe it's relationally. I I don't know what it is. What's the deepest fear inside of you? What are you afraid of? And then here's another one, because I don't want to miss this angle of fear too. Who are you trying to please? 
Who are you trying to please? This is so interesting how fear works um, because often we ascribe value or, or we gain value from what other people ascribe to us. And so is there someone in your life, you may say, I'm not scared of anything or I'm not scared of people, you know, whatever, but, but is there something that you fear others seeing you as? Is there something or someone that you fear or have elevated to the place of God? Because what we fear dictates our behavior. So how does that play itself out in your life? How does that manifest itself? I, I love this here. I'm just going to read this. The person or thing to which we ascribe the most authority to define who we are and what we're worth and what we should do and how we should do it is the person that we fear the most. Do you have that person in your life? Is there someone, maybe even from childhood, that you long to please or you long to measure up to, you long to gain value or, or identity from? Is there someone in your life that you seek to please? And maybe it's God. Hopefully it's God. But if it's not, who might that be? Here's what's so funny about Peter. Um, I told you he's my favorite disciple for a reason, right? So Peter, if we fast forward, not a couple hours at this time, but just a couple of weeks, here's what we find, Acts 4, Acts chapter 4. Um, either turn in your Bibles with me or we'll have it on the screen. Acts 4, Peter gets dragged into the same Sanhedrin in front of the same people that he was avoiding just weeks earlier, gets dragged in front of them to give an account because he and some of the other disciples were healing people in Jesus' name. This is what Peter says to the Sanhedrin. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Is that bold or what? You're talking to some of the most powerful people of your time and you're saying, just want to remind you, you crucified Jesus, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. What it says in scripture, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. What they say in the text is the stone that the builders rejected, the. What Peter says is the builders have been identified as you. You rejected him, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we might be saved or must be saved. Can we ask the same question? What happened to Peter? What happened to this death-defying, I don't care who it is or what happens, I'm with you to the end, Jesus, to, okay, I'm, I've been threatened by a teenage girl and I'm willing to give it all and sacrifice everything. You can have it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Two, now we're back on the other side again, looking at the authorities, the people who have the power to strip every one of those fears from you. They can make them all a reality. What happens that makes him go straight to him and point a finger and say, this is who you are and this is who Jesus is. Do whatever you want. What happened? Don't you want that kind of faith? What happened to Peter? This is where this is one of the coolest, I think, stories in scripture because it talks about this time between this event 
And when Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus died, he was resurrected, and he spent time with his disciples, and there's this scene where Jesus and Peter are on a beach, and they're cooking fish on a campfire with all the other disciples, and they're talking. And Jesus turns his attention to Peter, and he asks him a question. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And I don't want you to miss the significance here, so I want you to count with me. So everybody say one. 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 And then he looks at him again, or Peter, he responds, he says, of course, Lord, you know I love you. And then he says, Peter, do you love me? Say it with me. Two. He says, of course I do. And then Jesus says it one more time. He says, Peter, do you love me? Say it with me. Three. And it says Peter was hurt. Why? How many times did Peter deny who Jesus was? Three. And how many times did Jesus ask him if he loves him? Do you see the connection? What Jesus communicated to Peter is this. I know you screwed up. I know fear got a hold of your heart. I know you've carried this shame and this guilt of denying me because I'm so central to who you are. I know you feel that, but I want you to know this, that when you come to me, you find love, that you find grace, that you find forgiveness. And it was at this moment that that Peter gets a glimpse as to the character that he has known has been there all along but experienced in a very real way, maybe for the first time. And when Jesus leaves and he ascends into heaven, Peter leaves with a charge on his life. And he says, this belief that I have of who Jesus is, who God is to me, this belief, I now understand that in the right place, when I fear the right thing, and I put God in the place that he deserves, there's nothing that even pales in comparison to that. That he's saying, when God is at the seat of the throne in my heart, that we talked about this last week, a fear of God, of respect, or a reverence, or awe, or submission, when God is in the rightful place in our hearts, everything else just kind of fades away. Because to compare the two, there is none. Don't you want that kind of faith that says, I don't know what my circumstances are. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. I don't know how I'm going to get my kids back. I don't know how I'm going to restore the relationship. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I played it out a million different ways. Am I going to survive this? Am I not? Is my loved one going to survive? Are they not? And you play it out. And then what, what God is teaching us in this story through Peter is for us to do this, to zoom out and to remember Who's our God? I love Ashley read this this morning, that we would know and understand how wide and deep and high, and I already forgot the other one, but you get the picture, how amazingly incredible is the love that God has for us.
And that when we leverage that and when we put God in his rightful place and we fear and submit and revere him for who he is, we also understand that all of his promises are true. That he says, I will protect you and I will provide for you and I will care for you and I will forgive you and you will find a home and a refuge and safety with me. Don't you want that kind of faith? So here's the question. If that's true, and if you want that type of faith, what's a logical question to ask? How? How do I get that? How do I do that? How do I release you know, the, the control or the, the power that fear has on my life? And here's the good news, is Peter demonstrated that, that fear does not have to have a grip on your heart But that faith, when we trust God instead, actually yields power over every other fear and anxiety and uncertainty in our life. So how? How does that happen? If Christ is now our identity, we find our hope and we put him in the place in our heart, here's three things that we need to do. We need to start, write these down, with knowledge. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. That means don't answer. So don't answer, okay? Otherwise, we've got a bunch of Peters in the room. I'm still going to answer. Here's a rhetorical question. How are you to know what's true if you never know what's true? Is that a dumb question? It seems dumb. How are you supposed to know what the right thing is to do if you don't actually know the right thing? Here's how this applies to our lives. As we live, our our world is controlled by fear. You know that, whether we see it on the media or in the news or in the movies or social media, insurance, think about security cameras, whatever it is, as you go out into the world, here's my challenge, just look for places that invoke fear in you. And there are abundance, there are an abundance of things in our lives that cause us fear. So, but fear, if when we feel or experience fear, if we don't know what's true, what wins the day? Say it with me. Fear. So fear and combating fear is understanding it from the start, and it starts with knowledge. Do you have a regular time set aside each day where you can spend just reading and understanding? This is truth. This is what God says. I've preserved this for you so that you might know and understand, and that fear has no power. All you need to do is just know what's in this book. Starts with knowledge. But then there's another step, and it continues with experience. Experience is just, as I look back on my track record with God, as I look at the things that we've been through together, as I look at the highs and the lows of life, and you see that God has never failed you, that he never left you, that he was there the whole time. As we look at that, what gains trust in our hearts is seeing a track record of God never failing us. And then number three, it says this, awareness. Isn't it true that fear tends to be a moving target? I told you this last week. Whether it's feeling anxiety about something in particular or web MDing your life and realizing you've been diagnosed with all these illnesses that are untreatable and you, know, you freak out and you kind of spitball and you play this all out. Isn't it true that once you deal with that and you go, okay, that was stupid. Yeah. That was dumb. I don't need to let that have fear or hold on my life. When you move on, isn't it true that something else just fills in the place? Because all of a sudden the car breaks down and you go, well, how am I gonna pay for this? And then all of a sudden, uh, one of your kids is struggling in school. 
well, how are we gonna get over this challenge now? What does this mean? What are the implications? And then the diagnosis comes in and it's not what you anticipated. And how are we gonna deal with that? And, and on and on and on. Isn't it true that fear is just this moving target that's changing constantly? That's why we go with this last step, which is awareness. Are you aware of the fear in your life? Because often we're not even aware of things that we're motivated, we're driven by in, return, or in regards to fear. So here's the, I got two more things for you. Um, I'm gonna show you a picture. How many of you actually know who this guy is? If I pop that up. How many of you know who that is? Okay, we're gonna say it all at once. Ready? One, two, three. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. As many of you know, he passed away just, I think, a couple weeks or months ago. Billy Graham is kind of known as like America's pastor. As I was reading about him, what they were saying is, you know, you have like a, a dignitary or a president or a significant funeral or a tragedy that happens in our country. Billy Graham was often the one who was called upon to come be present and to be a part of it. And you just think about, I don't know if you know the breadth of his experience and who he talked to, but, but it's estimated that he spoke to over 80 million people in his lifetime that he was in crowds or stadiums or buildings with 80 million people who came to hear what he had to say about God throughout the course of his life. And it's also estimated that three million people gave their lives to him at one of his events. And so you look at a guy like this on such a high pedestal and a reporter gets him in a room and asks him this question and here's the question. The question is, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? And I just want to ask you, let's say that this is you and you're in the room and you're sitting down and a reporter is sitting there with a pad and a pen and they say, here's just a question I've just been dying to know. What's your greatest fear? What drives you? What's, what's that deepest part that, that there's a chance not even the people closest to you know? What's the deepest seated like? Is it a fear of dying? Is it the fear of losing someone? Is it the fear of, of cancer? Is it the fear of not providing for your family? Is it a fear just not ever realizing what your purpose is in life? What is your greatest fear? And this is how Billy Graham responded to this reporter. He said this, that I would do something or say something that will bring some disrepute, that's like dishonor or a blemish, that, I would, that would bring disrepute on the gospel of Christ before I go. How does that not affect you in the deepest level? That when your greatest fear in life is misrepresenting the gospel of Jesus, it pales everything in comparison. That you understand God is at the rightful place in my heart. That he owns me and that everything is submitted to his authority. That he promises he works all things for our good, for the good of those who love him, that we can trust him, that we can follow him, that we can give up everything for him because the one thing that we fear more than anything else, the one thing we revere or give power to or submit to more than anything else is him. Think about the implications of that 
on our lives. And I just want to say this to you because maybe you're sitting here and maybe you're thinking, I'm not that driven by fear. I don't feel like I'm that motivated by it. I don't feel like it maybe necessarily has that big of a grip on my life. Here's my challenge to you. Open your eyes and look at the people directly related to you. Those who are proximate and those who are close to you because fear is something we all wrestle with. It is our job to make sure that God stays on the throne in our own hearts, but also to be stewards of that for the people around us. So I just have a challenge for you. And the challenge, it's kind of on the cusp of last week. Last week, if you remember this, the challenge was, if you have a fear, if there's something that's weighing you down, um, pull out a piece of paper. Could be at work, could be here, could be at home, wherever it is, write down just on the piece of paper, this is what I'm afraid of. This is what I fear right now. This is what gives me anxiety. And you write it down. And just as as an act of symbolism, you just crumple that up, you shoot the three, you drain it in in the garbage can, and you say, that thing's done. I'm done with that, right? You guys remember this? Just symbolically, cast it out. I don't need that. That doesn't need power over me. Well, here's step two. This is my challenge for you this week, is that you would go home and that you would replace your fear with the truth of Scripture. That you say, I'm nervous about finances. Just go on Google. Just say, what does the Bible say about finances and financial security? What does God say about my heart? What does God say about provision? If maybe you say, I'm nervous or I'm scared about my health, Google it. Spend some time reading. What does God say about people who he loves, who are loved by him, who follow him, who submit? What does God say? Because the truth, as we unpack it more and more and more, is that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. No, we have nothing to fear. Would you pray with me? God, we just come to you today from a variety of different places. Some of us are just so gripped by fear and anxiety that it seems hard to function or, or move or even get out of bed sometimes. Others of us feel feel fearless in regards to life and relationships, and yet deep down there's there's someone who we've just desired to please and gain affirmation from. Others of us are just maybe now realizing as you're putting things on our heart, the things that we've given into, the things where we desire others' opinions more than yours, the things where we've doubted your provision and taken matters into our own hands. God, I just pray that you would show us areas of our life that we haven't submitted to you and we've given power to fear, to control and manipulate them. And God, I just pray that you, working through your Holy Spirit, would fill this room and fill each and every person here. That you would stir in their hearts a softening to you and who you are as God and as sovereign. And I just pray that you would reveal to us each in our own way, exactly as we need from you, how loved we are and accepted we are, just as we are because of you. And God, I pray for eyes to see those around us who are struggling with the exact same thing. Give us the words, give us the wisdom, give us the scripture, and give us the experiences to speak into the lives of other people who are gripped by fear so that we can be a conduit and a vessel of your grace 
and your love and your forgiveness and your assurance to a world who needs you. We love you so much and all God's people said.